Stacey, Keith, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into this. Stacey, first, could you give our listeners a brief introduction to minimal residual disease um, in haematological malignancies um, and how MRD is, is currently monitored? Right. So minimal residual disease is, um, in general, refers to the two cancer cells that, refer, that remain in the body after someone is treated for their cancer. And we are interested in monitoring and being able to detect MRD because it's these cancer cells that are responsible for the recurrence or the relapse of, of someone's cancer. In general, we want the most sensitive and the most specific techniques to monitor uh, MRD. And for multiple myeloma, the gold standard is uh, monitoring serum immunoglobulins, which is a relatively um, invasive procedure for the patients. And some of the other approaches that we use, which are a little bit more sensitive are things like uh, next generation sequencing or multi-parametric uh, flow cytometry. Um, and so these come with significant cost burden, and they also rely on a very specific understanding of the characteristics that make up each disease. And so what are some of the current limitations of how MRD is monitored? So I think I already spoke to this a little bit. It's about the sensitivity and the specificity and the cost. And so if you look at, uh, as, as well as the burden on the patient. So um, as I said, for multiple myeloma, we use uh, serum immunoglobulins, which are measured from the bone marrow. So this requires patient to undergo a relatively uncomfortable uh, bone marrow aspiration, which is an invasive procedure where we stick a very large ne needle into someone's bone to extract the bone marrow. Um, and so, so that's one limitation is how, how we can get the material we need to monitor minimal residual disease. And other limitations are about cost. So uh, like I said, next generation sequencing and flow cytometry, they come um, at large costs and they're not always uh, specific or require a certain bulk presence of the disease to be able to, to, be able to detect any MRD. And, and so, Keith, could you tell us about your recent research published in Nanomedicine, investigating a novel tool to monitor hematological malignancies? Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Grieve did a great job sort of introducing the problems that we face, you know, particularly from a patient, but also from an institution and, and a clinical viewpoint. And what we were really intrigued by was, was sort of that intersectionality of trying to improve um, our thinking about uh, research studies in general. This is a highly collaborative work that we've completed uh, today involving engineers and computer scientists, oncologists, uh, molecular biologists, and, and uh, medical translationalists like myself. And really what we were trying to do was, was address many of those uh, problems that, uh, that Stacey outlined. And it was um, looking at everything at once rather than one specific thing. So rather than looking at just the cancer cells themselves, which, you know, you can imagine being a patient and having a large needle shoved into your bone or constantly going for blood work is it's painful and it's uncomfortable and, and removing some of the uncertainty in having the limits of just say one immunoglobulin profile, you know, you're just looking at a few proteins. Instead, what if we looked at the entire biochemistry of the patient in one go? Um, and so that's really what this paper was about. It was looking at that, what we call chemical or biochemical fingerprint using Raman spectroscopy. And what we did was we tried to augment the reference profiles that really give us a sense of what 
is normal in somebody who's ill and older, as well as somebody who, a population that would be very healthy and young. And that way we could um, identify the sensitivity and the specificity in the um, hematological malignancies that we were studying and try to address some of those problems and really tailor the, the identification of whether somebody needs treatment or is, or is you know, regressing with their disease and needs to be made aware of it in, in a way that, that could ultimately improve their quality of life, that they could essentially live with cancer a bit better. And so that was the main objectives of the work. And uh, what you'll see in the paper is, is really a look at the machine learning algorithms that were used instead of uh, humans, which are were biased and were simple brained uh, creatures, but computers are beautiful. They can look at all, all these multivariables at once and then, and then create network uh, uh, abilities to, to piece them together into principal components that matter uh, to the clinical outcome and to the patient. So that's, that's really what this paper was about, is building those really solid reference um, criteria and then adapting those computers to look in a more powerful way than a human could at many things changing at once. Okay, so how, how would you really describe the process that you undertook to, to get this research and to publish this paper? What was the actual sort of bare bones of the study? Yeah, that's a great question. So in really simple terms, um, we collected uh, plasma samples from patients, uh, various patients, those with cancer, hematological malignancy specifically, but also healthy young patients, plasma, and people who are sick and in hospital for a different reason uh, related to cardiac surgery. We basically said, how do we look in an unbiased way um, using machine learning algorithms that take the human equation out of it to look at all the different variables that are in play in that plasma using Raman nano-enhanced signaling um, and, and then link that to their clinical charts. And in doing so, we were able to find that um, it's very easy to separate the young healthy from those who are sick, but it's a little bit harder to separate sick from sick. And within the hematological malignancies, those with cancer, um, we found some real salient bits that sort of show us that we can monitor the progression of the individual and certain events that might be salient for a clinician to pick up and identify how to help that patient uh, earlier than we would have otherwise been able to see. Okay. Uh, and does this study have implications for costs associated with these kind of um, behaviors in hospitals? Yeah, that's something that Dr. Green mentioned as well. Uh, you know, hematological malignancies are a global concern, right? Um, no matter where you live in the world, cancer is, is present. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have equitable access to all the same resources. So this was an important aspect that we looked at, you know, whether it was you know, the limitations in next-gen sequencing, which very few countries have, or multi-parametric flow cytometry. These are expensive, they're complicated, they require very sophisticated uh, people to operate. Um, we were looking at more of the um, penny per cost test. And, and that's what this is. It, it really is a low cost, it, you know, preparation. It doesn't require a huge amount of skill. Um, it does require a Raman instrument, um, but this is something that we deem could be affordable in most all hospitals. Uh, but other than that, the training required to prepare the sample and, and input it, of course, is very basic. Anybody could conceivably do that. And once a system is up and running, it requires no additional training. So there's no follow-on uh, expectations here. But you know, blood handling being simple leads to the more complicated stuff that still needs a lot of work. So it's not ready for prime time in the sense that we could just 
drop this into all the hospitals because we still need a lot more training and design engineering to go into that machine learning component. And so we need to build up our data sets and our standard uh, process protocols uh, to make it more ubiquitous. But I think that's a workable option. And, and, uh, and, and we're really excited by that because you know this, this is something that we think can, can uh, be broadly taken up. Excellent. Um, and Stacy, so for a patient living with a condition uh, such as multiple myeloma, what does this paper mean? So as Heath said, I mean, we, we are still some ways away from moving this into the clinic, but optimistically, this tool allows us with a simple blood test and a very small amount of blood to be able to monitor someone's disease progression and pick up any changes uh, not only specific to their disease, but maybe a treatment response or an adverse event or some other um, biological phenomenon that, that's occurring um, because of their disease. So for a patient, this means that a very quick blood draw means we can gather information about what's happening in their body relevant to their disease. And the physician can pick this up and decide we need to be more vigilant in, in how we're monitoring you because we're seeing some changes or the changes are enough that I think we need to start treating. Um, and so hopefully this will give the patient um, some peace of mind that, they, that their disease is being monitored without having to do any invasive tests. And so Keith, what, what are some of the next steps for incorporating Raman spectroscopy into clinical practice? Well, like, like I said, I think one of the important things is to know that, you know, we have to build a better library and approach to the way we uh, standardize this. So it definitely requires a little bit more uh, design engineering and certainly a lot more training. A machine learning algorithm is only as good as the training sets you're providing it. And that's something that we really emphasize in this work. And you don't want to just have one training set, a reference set of healthy or even disease from an unrelated condition. You need, you need sort of um, quite a few different uh, aspects of that. So reproducibility, I think, is something the field really needs to focus in on. Generating another paper in, in, in another form of cancer with a slightly different modality is not the end goal here. The goal is ultimately to utilize these uh, instruments and approaches. So I think there's a few things. Um, definitely the reference standards can be improved. The processes can be standardized. So this is something we identified in the paper um, that conferences could be better suited to do. Um, and looking how different instruments affect that. So th the ultimate goal is we want this to work in Canada, in South Africa, in India, in Japan equally. And, and that's really important to us. So we need to build our, our clinical indexes and evaluation criteria alongside that machine learning training too. So we can't just say somebody's got a um, malignancy. We have to say, what is the state of that malignancy? And this is where Brahman is so multifunctional because it can not only detect the, the nature of the cancer and the way the cancer is either being suppressed or inactive or resurgent, it can also find um, um, salient things related to the treatment itself. So whether that's an adverse event potentially, or just you know in, in general, whether there's a bit more aggressive uh, signals. We think that probably the best way to do this is to come alongside clinical trials that are actively recruiting because you have a good intake and, and follow through and a really nice clinical reference um, and, and astute data collection is ongoing there. And then by, by working in tandem with that, we can actually uh, use those clinical trial data uh, to inform the machine learning as well. So that's really our next goal here is to, is to accelerate this and move this forward into a, a companion-like um, event. Um, and Stacey, do you have anything to add on to that? 
Yeah, I think Keith sort of left us um, at, a, at a good point. And so from a clinical perspective, um, some of the things that we need to focus on are um, using validated clinical scales um, and running alongside clinical trials where we have uh, known treatments and known responses. Um, and we have a more uh, homogenous group of patients that we can evaluate and train our machine learning algorithm on. And so I think we're very fortunate in, in New Brunswick that we have a researcher who is running a pan-Canadian myeloma study funded by the Terry Fox Research Institute. And uh, hopefully we can access some of those samples um, because they are monitoring multiple myeloma patients um, in very controlled um, manner um, throughout the course of their disease, over from the, from the uh, diagnosis to the treatment, um, multiple treatment modalities that they're getting, and we have uh, samples throughout the, throughout the entire course of their disease. So uh, this is very exciting, and this would allow us to sort of take our paper, which is really just a, a proven concept that, you know, we can actually use Raman to monitor disease, um, but move it into the next step, and that it's, it's you know, clinically relevant and it's important, it might be an important component to include in, in clinical trials moving forward. Excellent. Well, I think that's all of my questions for both of you. Do, do um, either of you have any closing comments? Well, maybe I'll just say that, that in, in my career to date, this is one of the most complex works <laughs> I've ever um, engaged with. And, and I felt that this was truly an example of a diverse group of scientists, chemists, engineers, computerists, um, you know, oncologists and, and biomolecular uh, scientists really coming together in a way that none of us really knew what we were doing in its entirety. And I think that that's, that's good because all these highly specialized skills managed to work together and we, and we generated this paper and, and now this paper sort of serves as the foundation of our continuing work. And Dr. Green mentioned that already, that, you know, we're looking at one of these clinical trials uh, with one of our partners. And, you know, just we're really invested in that collaborative group mentality at this point. And, and we feel that drives innovation and solution creation. It's a small step. I agree. It's you know, um, a proof of concept, as Dr. Grieve mentioned, um, but it's high risk and high reward success that I think will continue to, you know, listen to our patients' needs and understand what, what motivates them and what their needs are, and then let our science be guided by that. And that's really what started this was, was a high risk, high reward project. Um, and, you know, just bringing all of these people together as we go forward, you know, the clinicians, the drug developers now, you know, looking at clinical chemistry, how does that um, system integrate within the hospital and, you know, what engineers and biophysicists do we need to engage with? And so Dr. Green and myself as translationalists, I mean, this is, this is a quintessential moment where we're sort of looking at this paper as, wow, we actually did this. <laughs> we got it all to come together. Um, and we think we've given some good direction for the field as well. Brilliant. Well, it's, uh, it's it's really great to hear that you've enjoyed and, and found a, a really excellent kind of collaboration with all those different types of scientists um, and are now able to hand it off to a, another group to continue the work. Um, so, yeah, Stacey, Keith, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been great. Thank you again. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, appreciate it.